This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. When you come to two places, Mark 3 and Matthew 12. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, and Matthew, chapter 12. These two portions are about one incident, but one's a little bit fuller than the other. Mark 3, first of all, and reading from verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has, Be- he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. And then in Matthew chapter 12, reading from verse 22. And one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Amen. Of all the qualities and characteristics of God that we have grown to know and love, I think that his forgiveness is one of the greatest. Uh, Nothing exemplifies 
the love and the graciousness of our God like his forgiveness. Now, we struggle with forgiveness. It doesn't come naturally or easily to us. We really sometimes struggle, but God does not struggle with forgiveness. He readily, lovingly, willingly forgives. He loves to forgive. He abundantly pardons, the Bible says. There are lots of scriptures in the Bible that highlights the forgiveness of God. I was reading in the paper last week, I think he was a playwright or a theater uh, director or something, something in the arts, and he was having a real rant about the God of the Bible and said, I've read the Bible, and he's not a God of forgiveness. He's a hard, austere God. And I thought, I don't know what Bible you're reading, mate, but it's not the one I've got. All you've got to do is turn to the story of the prodigal son. I remember when Jesus was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's so many examples of the free love and forgiveness of our God. But whenever you come to Mark 3 and Matthew 12, it just seems to fly in the face of all that we know about God's love and forgiveness. Because these are some of the harshest, severest, most awful words that Jesus ever spoke. They're frightening. To tell men that there is no forgiveness, neither in this life nor the next life. That that's it. That if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you have no hope forever. Now, over the years, many Christians have convinced themselves that they have committed this unpardonable, unforgiving sin. And it has tortured and tormented them. And it has caused them not to live the Christian life that they should be living because they just can't seem to get beyond this. Some others live in fear of committing it. They know they haven't, but they live in fear that maybe one day they will, and it'll be lost forever, and it'll be no forgiveness for them. Young Christians, I think, are particularly susceptible to this, but not exclusively so. Some older saints are as well. So what exactly is this unpardonable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about in Mark 3 and Matthew 12. And if we did commit it, how would we know? And if we haven't committed it, how would we know? That might be helpful before we go there that we explore, uh, first of all, and tell you what it isn't before we tell you what it is. What it isn't. It is not murder. It is not murder. Ask Moses. Moses killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And yet he was forgiven. David caused the death of Uriah the Hittite. He actually didn't kill him with his own hand, but he might as well have. 
because he made his general put this good man, this good soldier, the husband of Bathsheba, made him put him right into the heat of the battle where there was a very good chance he would get killed, and he did get killed. So David was the conspirator. He was the one who actually caused this to happen. And yet, even though there was great consequences of his sin, yet God forgave him when he repented. Saul of Tarsus, he was one who officially witnessed the death of the first Christian martyr and went there to enjoy seeing that because he hated and despised the believers. And yet I believe that's where God began to touch his heart. And not long thereafter, he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he was completely and utterly forgiven. So it's not murder. It's not adultery. Awful as that is. Painful as it is for those concerned. But yet it's forgivable. And David was truly forgiven. It's not suicide. Tragic as that is. But yet the Bible doesn't say that's an unforgivable sin. It's not someone in a moment of weakness or cowardice denying the Lord Jesus. Peter did that three times in quick succession. And though that was awful and shameful, but yet he was forgiven, wasn't he? Completely. It's not someone even in a rage for whatever reason, angry at God for whatever reason, blaspheming the Lord Jesus. That can be forgiven. Jesus himself said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So all of these and more can be and will be forgiven. But it's this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that sets this sin apart from all others. And we need to understand, therefore, what this exceptional sin is. And I say exceptional. It's not an everyday occurrence, this. We need to know, then, who Jesus said this too, and why he said it. Matthew gives a little bit more detail than Mark in it. That's why we read the both portions. See, in Matthew 12, if you were to read from the beginning of the chapter, you'd see that the scribes and the Pharisees, they condemned Jesus because he allowed his disciples on the Sabbath as they're walking through a field to break some grain and eat it. And they were incensed with that. And what even made it worse was whenever he healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, they were incandescent with rage. Can you imagine? Such was their legalism 
and their petty rules they had made. And now we see in verse 22 to 32 this notable miracle. A blind man, a dumb man, can instantly heal. What a notable miracle. So much that those standing around, the ordinary people says, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah that we've been waiting on? I've never seen anything like this before. This was amazing. And so the Pharisees at this point, they had a clear-cut choice to make. How would they respond? Either what they had saw happen was the result of the power of God working through Jesus of Nazareth, or it was the power of Satan. One or the other. Not a lot of boxes to tick here, folks. Clear choice to make. And they made their choice because they hated him with a passion. They despised Jesus. Nothing he could say or nothing he could do would convince them otherwise. And the answer they would give, the explanation they would give, should I say, would reveal a hardened, calloused, wicked heart. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. This is not just something rash, they said. This would reveal their very hearts that had been, I guess, for a long, long time. Right from the moment Jesus appeared to begin his ministry, they were against him immediately. Thankfully, not all. There was a few. But the vast majority of the religious leaders were adamantly against the Lord Jesus Christ and took every opportunity to snipe at him and to accuse him, and to lie about him. So it's no surprise that they acted the way they did at this moment. Verse 24, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So these people were clearly, deliberately, unambiguously attributing the Spirit's power to Satan. They had seen it happen again and again. And this is not the first miracle they saw. And yet over that period of watching Jesus closely and of seeing the miracles and hearing of the miracles and seeing the people who were healed, in spite of all of the evidence, they chose to believe and to accuse Jesus of being filled with the devil and doing the devil's works. Now this, as far as God is concerned, is not just unacceptable, it's unforgivable. Not just unacceptable. It's unforgivable. Lots of things to God are unacceptable. And people need to change their ways. But this is more than that. It's unforgivable. There is no forgiveness for this. Now, before Jesus gives them, tells them the reasoning why this is unforgivable, he tells them why it's unacceptable. 
First of all, it simply makes no sense whatsoever. Satan is the ultimate dictator. He's the ultimate despot. He will brook no insubordination within his ranks. And if you look at the history of dictators in the world, they were all the same. Hitler would have no insubordination. Stalin would have no insubordination. <laughs> Genghis Khan, you name any of them. People lived in fear of them. Dare not lift a finger against them. Would have cost them their very lives. So there'll be no reason to cast out. There'll be no reason to sit to cast out. There'll be none to cast out because none would dare go against him or rebel against him. It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, if Jesus came to destroy Satan's kingdom, which he did, then why would he be in league with the devil? Or why would the devil be in league with him? doesn't make any sense, does it? So Jesus is showing them the utter foolishness, the futility of their argument. It just doesn't add up. If Satan casts out Satan, that'll be the end of him. A house cannot stand if it's divided. A country cannot stand if it's divided. A church cannot stand if it's divided. Nothing can stand if it's divided. So Jesus said, it doesn't make sense. And then thirdly, in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. So obviously there were exorcists in those days. Whether they're any good or not, it's another argument. Remember the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? They decided they were going to cast out demons out of a man. The man jumped on her seven, and the man jumped on and beat them all up. And the demon said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? <laughs> so whether they're any good or not at this, we don't know. But they're obviously sons of the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus said, well, if your sons do this, by what part do they do it? You're condemning yourself, is what he's telling them. It doesn't make any sense. So he's showing them their arguments were unacceptable. But worse than that, they're unforgivable. But wait a minute. Say, David, all of that is well and good, but it doesn't tell us exactly why attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil is unforgivable. We know that it is, but why is it? Why is it somebody can blaspheme Jesus and misinterpret and misappropriate all that he does and still be forgiven. But if you do that with the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. What's the difference? Why is that? To be sure, blasphemy is to attribute the Spirit's power to Satan. But even if he blasphemed Jesus, there's forgiveness. But this sin cannot be forgiven. Did you notice I mentioned earlier that if a man repents, 
if somebody repents, let me put it this way. Every sin that you can repent of can be forgiven. Every sin that you can repent of, no matter what it is, if you can repent of it truly, it will be forgiven. Clear teaching of Scripture. Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? See, I didn't say seven times, but until 70 times seven. You'd hardly be counting that much, would you? I think you'd have lost count by then, wouldn't you? If somebody repents, they can be forgiven. So this sin is not something that's committed lightly or spontaneously. It's not a slip of the tongue. It's not a spar of the moment thing. It's the result of a heart that is hardened, that's calculating, that's deliberate, that is without fear or reverence of God. And it's saying what is patently true to be a lie. They knew They knew what Jesus was doing was the power of God, but they attribute it to Satan. Because to attribute it to the power of God, to say this is God, then what were they going to do? Were they going to accept him? Were they going to receive him? No. They were going to reject him. So they had to say this is the power of Satan. This is Beelzebub. And so when a man comes to that stage they have obviously gone beyond the bounds of repentance. They have no desire to repent. They have resisted all overtures from God. They're deaf to God. They're not open to repentance. Their neck is stiff. Their heart is stone. In Acts 7.51, the first martyr Stephen, when he's standing before his accusers, listen carefully what he says, you stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Didn't say resist Jesus. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus on earth was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He got his power. The Holy Spirit empowered him. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so so do you. Listen, John 16 and 8 tells us clearly, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts or convinces men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Anytime we feel any conviction, that's the Holy Spirit working. That's not your natural feelings. That's the Holy Spirit he does that in our hearts to turn us to God. Not to condemn us, to turn us away from God, but to convict us and convince us to turn to God to receive his forgiveness. So when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming the very one that could turn you to God and convict you. But you've hardened your heart. Your ears are deaf. Your heart's like stone. I'm not saying yours is like that. But I'm saying that's what it takes. So this is not a light thing. This is not just something that just pops up. It's not something that's easy to happen. This is something that is serious. 
So after years of seeing all of the miraculous, the blind eyes opening, the deaf ears opening, the lame walking, the lepers clean, even the dead raised, in spite of all of that evidence, they said, this is the devil. So this was not just simply unbelief. This was willful defiance. See, there, there are many today who do not believe that there are any supernatural works of God being done on the earth anymore. That all of that stuff, miracles and all of those signs or wonders or anything that's supernatural, it all died out with the apostles. When the last apostle died, that was the end of it. And they believe that because that is their theological mindset. That is their traditional theological mindset. That's what they believe. That's what they've always believed. That's what they've been always taught to believe. But they love Jesus. And they respect the Holy Spirit. And they're not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They just said all of that's finished. It's all stopped. And if for some reason or other they hear about a miracle somewhere, they're not apt to believe it. Because that would pose a big problem if they did believe it. Because then you've got a question. So they're not apt to believe that. And if people claim miracles, they say, well, either at best they're deceived, at worst they're just liars. But that doesn't mean to say that they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But if having had overwhelming evidence of the miraculous of knowing someone or some group that this has happened to. If having seen that or knows that, and they still persist and actually not just not believe it, but say, well, if it happened, it can't be God. It must be the devil. And if they continue in that, they're in a very dangerous path. A very dangerous path indeed. It's good and it's wise, you know, to test and weigh reports about what you hear and not swallow all of the hype that very often surrounds things when God starts to move. Because trust me, there's a lot of hype gets involved. But that doesn't mean that we should become calloused in our heart and hardened in our heart and become cynical in our hearts. It's okay to question. It's okay to test. It's okay to weigh. That's all right. But not to become hardened and calloused, and cynical. Because maybe God's at work, and we just haven't recognized it. So we need to leave a part of our life open to, well, maybe God's in this. I don't understand everything's going on, but maybe God is in this. Now, if there's something that evidently isn't God, then we should be at least big enough to say that, or know that, and understand that. Historically speaking, whenever... And wherever revivals has been in the world, historically speaking, there's always been some element of the flesh that has got in. Always. There's always the terrors has come up with the weight. Always. Study any revival and you'll find that. In the 1859 revival in Ulster, when 10% of this nation got saved in one year, there was what was called a striking down. People come under such conviction 
that they would drop onto their knees, sometimes in the street, but more often in church when the people would gather, they'd fall on their knees and they would cry and they would cry out and they would scream out for mercy from God. And it was very disconcerting. It frightened some people. Could never seen this before. And some ministers wrote the whole thing off and said it's all of the devil or it's all of the flesh. It's just all emotional. But it wasn't. The vast majority of it was genuine and real and people's lives were changed and whole towns were changed. I was reading a little article today where in Crumlin, <laughs> where people were, they had to put in for a license for their pubs and their bars. And 10 of them in this whole area didn't put their license in because nobody was coming to the pub anymore. There's that many folk getting saved. I mean, th th that was real. I mean, it, ch it changed the landscape of the whole communities, of whole towns. Thousands of people would gather for prayer meetings, not even Sunday meetings, for prayer meetings, sometimes in the street because there's nowhere to put them. So God was doing something, but yet in, its, in the midst of all of that, there was elements of the flesh. There were some people who wanted to get in on the act. And they wanted to be seen and to be noticed. Not many, but some. But the ministers weighed it and they examined it. And the end result was, he says, this is of God. Even though we just don't fully understand people falling down and, and, and literally look as if they had fainted and crying on their knees. Sometimes for days they would cry, for days. Couldn't stop crying for days until they broke through with God and felt they were forgiven. Their sins would come before them continually. Sometimes children in school it would happen to. So we need to be careful about condemning everything just out of hand. We need to weigh and think and pray and study. And if God's in it, it'll become evident because lives will show that. The fruit will show that. And yes, if there's some flesh, there'll be some tares among the wheat. Understand that. But you've got to look at the bigger picture. So how do you know then that you have not committed this unpardonable sin? Well, let me say this first of all. There are some theologians and good commentators who believe that you couldn't commit this sin anyway in this day and age. This was only for the scribes and the Pharisees and it was only in Jesus' day. I don't know why they came to that conclusion, but they have. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think that it is possible. I think that it's not likely, but it is possible. So how do you know you have not committed the unforgivable sin? Here's the litmus test. If you feel any concern, if you are even slightly worried that you have committed this sin, let me assure you that is a good sign you have not. Absolutely not. 
Because if you had, you would not feel any concern whatsoever. Those scribes and Pharisees had no concern whatsoever. Didn't bother them. Didn't lose an ounce of sleep over it. If you feel grieved by sin, if you commit a sin and you feel grieved by it, another sign that you have not committed the unpardonable sin because you would not feel grieved about anything. Your heart would be so hard that you would not be grieved. If you are afraid that you may have committed this sin, you haven't because you'd never fear about it. If you believe that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, you have not committed this sin. This sin is not easy to commit. You don't stumble upon it. It doesn't rise up in a moment of heat or passion or rage. It's not spontaneous. It's not a spontaneous word or action that you do or say. It's deliberate, calculated, premeditated, and it's continuous and progressive in nature. That's what those guys were like in Jesus' day. It just accumulated to the point where their hearts were hard and their ears were deaf and they would accuse Jesus of being leagued with the devil and any power he had was the devil's power. So, if you have any concern or any thought, maybe have I, did I? You can guarantee you haven't because you wouldn't have any of those thoughts. You'd be free from them. You'd be so hard in heart. You'd be so against Christ. You'd be so against God's work, his true work. But you're not because you're in the house of God tonight, aren't you? You worshiped tonight, didn't you? You prayed today, didn't you? You had thoughts about the Lord today, hadn't you? See, all of those are signs that you haven't. So there's nothing to fear. Do not be afraid. We'll end where we began. Talking about God's forgiveness. He's a merciful God. He abundantly pardons. If we repent of any sin, he will forgive us because he loves us. His mercies are new and they are fresh every morning. He remembers our sins against us no more forever. <laughs> he doesn't forget them because then he might remember them. We forget because it's a malfunction of our brain, isn't it? God says, I don't forget your sins. He says, I don't remember them anymore forever. They're gone. They're gone forever, for all eternity. Isn't that wonderful? That every sin you've ever committed, you said, Lord, I'm sorry. He wipes the slate clean. He remembers them no more against you forever. That's the mercy of our God, isn't it? That's the goodness of our God.
And so relax tonight. You have not committed that. I promise you. I tell you in the authority of God's word, you have not committed that sin. You may have committed plenty of other ones, but you've not committed that one. See, the Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can vax the Holy Spirit by the things that we do, by the things that we say. Actually, we grieve and vax the Holy Spirit more than we imagine. Just sometimes by the things we say to each other grieves the Holy Spirit. But that's not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. That's a different thing entirely, you see. And the Holy Spirit, even though he's grieved, and even though it hurts him because he's very sensitive, but he forgives us. When you realize, say, Lord, I'm sorry, he forgives us. It's gone. It's over. And then we move on, walking with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.